This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to please open it to the book of Genesis again. Genesis chapter 25. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 in that chapter. Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you or on your phone, there are some hard copies of the Bible located in the chairs near where you are seated. Um, I remind you of this for two reasons. One, so you can have the copy of the Bible in front of you. And also, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible with you as a gift from Trinity. Uh, It would thrill our hearts to have to replace every one of them because people have need of them and take them with them. So please feel free to do that. Now, I want to recognize that looking at this title, Thankful Even in Death, that just seems weird to preach on before Thanksgiving. I mean, after all, we would expect Psalm 100, you know, some or even the passage that Michael read earlier about the ten lepers that are healed and only one comes back. That's what we expect. Well, this morning we zig when you think we're going to zag. We're going to be talking about death. And there are some reasons for that that I wanted to, to put before you. First, we are concluding this study of Abraham's life this morning. And you know what? I didn't want you to go through the holidays wondering what happens to Abraham. So we're going to conclude this study today by taking a look at Abraham's death. But even beyond that, I felt drawn to preach this out of the recognition that this time is very difficult for those who are grieving. For those who have experienced loss, the holidays are just hard. Now, we grieve any loss. We don't just grieve over death. Any loss that occurs where we feel something of our personhood has been lost or something that we value is lost, there's a sorrow, a a mourning that accompanies that. But this morning I'm focusing specifically on the loss that occurs in death. I recognize this from, from personal experience. I remember in the year 1989, my grandmother, my mom's mom, passed away on Christmas Eve, 1989. And just realizing years after that, Christmas was always just a little bit different. No, it didn't become morbid. We didn't stop celebrating Christmas. But I recognized that mom was just a little little change, a little more of a heaviness. My father passed away 10 years ago on November 25th. So Thanksgiving itself takes on a different meaning. And then I preach this because, well, quite frankly, November is a difficult month for my family. It was six years ago on November 16th that Emma entered the hospital and six years ago today that she went into a coma. Those memories are hard and grief accompanies them. So I preach it out of the reality that I've walked through and that Quite frankly, all of us in one way or another have faced when we are grieving. And I also preach this because I feel like we need to accept and recognize the bookends of life. 
we live in a culture that although we see death portrayed in movies and even hear songs about it, the truth is we deny the reality of it. It's almost like we, we just keep it at a distance. We know it's there, but we don't want to talk about it. And, and I've been reading a, a theologian by the name of Jürgen Moltmann and wanted to share, if we go to the next slide, a quote that he wrote in his book about hope. He said, to push away every thought of death and to live as if we had an infinite amount of time ahead of us makes us superficial and indifferent. To live as if there were no death is to live an illusion. In other words, without recognizing the end, our life becomes very superficial. We don't think about things of eternity, things that are of a true uh, gravitas nature. Now, when we think about death, obviously there are extremes we want to avoid. We don't want to be focused on morbidity where we fall into depression because we're just dwelling upon that. Nor do we want to approach it with flippancy where we deny its pain. So this morning we're going to think through how should we, we think about death as believers. We're going to deal with what happens when you die. We're going to take a look at how we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, how can we live with loss? Then finally examine how can we be thankful while we grieve. Now that's a lot. I don't pretend that I'm going to deal with all those things in depth. But maybe just as we, we think about it this morning, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will work in our lives to give us the hope that we need, that we can think about these as things as believers with thankfulness. So this morning we're in Genesis 25, verses 7 through 11. We are skipping over some parts, recognizingly. Uh, first of all, the death of Sarah. After chapter 22, where Abraham is faithful in laying Isaac on the altar, things progress very quickly. We really don't hear much more about Sarah or Abraham after that, other than Sarah dies. And then when Isaac becomes of age, Abraham sends him back to Haram, back to his homeland to find a wife. Then we come to this chapter, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohor, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laha Roy. May God be glorified in the hearing and reading of his word this morning. Out of this text, I want to look at three reasons to be thankful, even in the midst of grief. The first is this, to be thankful because of grace. Verse 8 gives a description of Abraham's life. In many ways, this is his epitaph that, that could have been placed upon his gravestone. Full of years, gathered to his people. Good old age, I think we would agree with that. 175 years, 
But I like the description there that it gives in verse 8 as it expands upon that. That three-word phrase, full of years. It's a way of describing a man that lived life. With all the ups and downs, the mistakes and successes, the failures and the victories. His life was full of years. That's a way to think about living. Not to let time pass in which I'm not trying to live life to the fullest and the best that I can. Because it is very possible to come to death empty of years. To approach death with years that are empty would mean that we have lived life with selfishness and anger. That we have wasted years on things that really are not of value. That broken relationships exist that we've not sought to mend. That we've lived life thinking only of ourselves. Bonnie Ware is an Australian nurse who spent the majority of her years caring for, nurse, for patients in the hospice unit. Her focus was upon the last 12 weeks of their lives usually. As she walked with her patients through the stages of their lives, she said that many of her patients gained phenomenal clarity of vision as they approached death. To see things as they really were. Bonnie wrote that whenever they were questioned about any regrets, that they had anything that they would do differently, she said common themes surfaced again and again. Now, think about that. She's saying that over, over her career, she had discussions with patients as they are approaching death. And as they were asked about regrets, she said there were five common things. What do you think they were? This is what she found. People said they wished they had had the courage to live true to themselves, not the lives that others expected of them. In other words, just fitting into the roles that people had. She said the second most common regret was this. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And she observed that this regret came from every male patient she nursed. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Third regret was I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Facing the end with thoughts and feelings unexpressed. Fourth regret was I wish I'd had the courage, or I'm sorry, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And finally, I wish I'd let myself be happier. You notice what's missing there? No one regretted that they didn't have more stuff. The regrets were relational. Things they hadn't said, things that they hadn't expressed. And I would say the way to counteract these things is to live by grace. You see, grace received means grace given. Where we learn to live in the promises of God and in the joy of what He has provided. Not in we have to earn, knowing that we don't have to measure up to God. We can live freely. It was grace, by God's grace, that Abraham attained that phrase full of years. After all, God had promised Abraham that he would live to an old age. In Genesis 15, 15, God was faithful. Abraham wasn't full of years because he was perfect. We've chronicled well the sins that Abraham committed. But there was always grace. God's promise. 
You see, when we forget the grace of God, we begin focusing on ourselves, what we can do. And in fact, often we will quote Paul's words in 2 Timothy to talk about how we need to live life in our own power. We read in verse 7 where Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I think we end up focusing on the wrong things. We end up focusing on the I, what we have done. Because the truth is, we don't always fight the good fight. There are times we mess up. And if we go to, through our lives thinking, I've got to be perfect to obtain this, we never will. Notice what Paul focuses on. I fought the good fight. Now, how many of you would give testimony that life is hard? It feels like a battle, doesn't it? Boy, I'm just full of good news this morning, aren't I? And the issue Paul is getting at is, what fight are you going to engage in? If you engage in the rat race of just getting ahead, getting all you can, and valuing the wrong things, you're fighting the wrong fight. Paul's not saying he was perfect. But he's saying that I have invested my life in that which is worthwhile being the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes back to that. He says, I finished the race. That's simply a way of saying he's approaching death. But then he says, I've kept the faith. The faith. What is the faith? He's saying, I've held on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've not been perfect. Paul was not perfect, just like me and you. Abraham was not perfect, just like me and you. Let it be said of us that we believe in the grace of God given through Jesus Christ, and we lived by that grace. That's our hope. That's what we can be thankful for. In the 15th century, there was a, a devotional that Christians had put together to help them prepare for the act of dying. The title of the devotional is the Ars Moriendi, which could be translated as the art of dying well. Within that book, there's a dialogue that takes place. An account where the dying person is approached by Satan. And then give you the heebie-jeebies. And Satan tries to act as a counselor for the one dying. Satan comes to the dying person and says, You're frightened, aren't you? And the dying person says, Yes, I am frightened. But I am trusting my Savior who calms all my fears. Satan responds by saying, Oh, really? You think you are going to be rewarded by this Jesus, don't you? You who have no righteousness? The dying person responds, Christ is my righteousness. At that point, Satan says, oh, Christ is your righteousness? You think Jesus will welcome you to the company of Peter and Paul and the apostles? You who have sinned over and over and over again? And the dying person responds, no, I am not going into the company of Peter and Paul. I'm going into the company of the thief on the cross who heard the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. I love that. I'm going into the company of the thief on the cross. Satan says, why are you so confident? You've done nothing good. The dying person says, I have God's forgiveness and mercy. Satan says, legions of demons are salivating, waiting for your soul. The dying person says, and I would be hopeless and fearful before that if the Lord had not already crushed your tyranny. Satan finally says, your God is unjust. 
What kind of God would bring someone like you into a kingdom of righteousness? And the dying person finally ends the conversation by saying, God keeps his promises. That is what justice is, and what I will call on is his mercy. You recognize that focus upon grace and the mercy of God? Now, I want you to recognize this grace is not just for the one dying, but for those who are giving care and ministering to those that are facing death. Now, as I say this, I recognize that it's not always the case. Sometimes death comes quickly and unexpected. But we have an opportunity in many cases to minister to those who are approaching the end. You notice in verse 9, and I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. His family was there with him, ministering. You find this theme of family being there, being a part of this. Genesis 49 records the death of Jacob. Prior to verse 28, Jacob has gathered his 12 sons there. And he has addressed every one of them. With a word of blessing or a word of warning. It says, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed. And breathed his last. And was gathered to his people. This, is, this, I think, is the hard part. As I said, I recognize that sometimes death comes very quickly and unexpectedly. But there are other times where it, we're aware of it. Cultures go through changes in how they approach death. I've had conversations with people and asking them, well, how, how do you want to approach the end? And Some have answered, well... I just want to die peacefully in my sleep by myself. Don't want family around or no one. And I'm going to share with you that grieves my heart. Because there's something very powerful, even holy, about being with the person at the time of death. I was with my mother when she died. In fact, me and my oldest daughter, Sue Ellen, were there. I remember being there and telling mom, whispering in her ear, it's okay, we love you, you're not alone. My father-in-law, Clarence, passed away in February with his family around him, reading to him, singing, laughing and crying together. When those times are possible, take advantage of them. But also, as I've said twice already, we recognize that's not always the case. So my counsel then is keep short accounts. The truth is, we never know. I read this statement somewhere and I like it. Live so that when the time comes to die, all you have to do is die. In other words, relationships are mended. Things are set right. Cling to his grace and thankfulness will follow. 
That's the first reason for thankfulness. The second is hope. That phrase at the end of verse 8, gathered to his people. There are two ways scholars recognize that. One is just simply talking about the burial place. Verse 10, it says that Abraham was buried in the field that he had purchased from the Hittites. It gives the name of the man that he bought it from. Sarah was buried there. So it's the idea of being buried in your family burial plot. Or it's a reference to life after death. To be gathered to your people means to go home, to be with them. I'll never forget what my mom said in the days leading up to her death. I asked her point blank, Mom, are you scared to die? She said, Lord, no. I got more people waiting on me over there than I have here now. Gathered to your people. This brings up the question of what happens to a believer when they pass away. The Old Testament uses the word sheol many times to talk about death. Sheol refers to the grave. The gathering place where the dead, dead are gathered. But even in the Old Testament, there are hints of resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19, for example, your dead, dead shall live, it, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This hint of resurrection, not only there in Isaiah, but also in Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is important for us to recognize the seeds of resurrection are already in the Old Testament. They come to fruition in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jesus is referred to as the first fruits, the first harvest from the dead because of his resurrection. I would remind you that resurrection is the finale. Resurrection is the end for us, these resurrected bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. That is the end to which the Bible points toward. So the question becomes, what about till then? What happens to the Christian who dies between the moment of death and the moment when Jesus returns and the dead are resurrected from the ground? This is referred to as the intermediate state. It's in between, the in-between state. Now, let me say a few things. First, the intermediate state is not purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory is a Roman Catholic doctrine that is based on writings found in the Apocrypha. The doctrine of purgatory is nowhere found in the Bible. It's the idea that a deceased Christian still has to go and make penance for their sins after death. Depending on the amount of sin, that's the amount of time they will spend in purgatory suffering for those sins. Church, we have a firm belief in the truth that when Jesus died, he died for all of our sins. He made the atonement. We can't. Not purgatory, nor is it soul sleep. Some have the idea that the intermediate state, the person who died, the Christian who dies, is just in kind of a suspended animation. They're just asleep waiting, and it'll be just like a moment, and their eye, you know, at the resurrection, their eyes open. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. Whenever sleep is used in the Scripture to describe death, it's using that as a way of showing the temporary nature of death. It's like being, you'll wake up. It's not permanent. Not that the person is asleep. What the scripture teaches us is this. The spirit of the Christian is in the presence of God rejoicing, 
knowing and being known, and waiting for the resurrection of the body. So the spirit at death goes to be with the Lord, is fully aware. We're going to look at some verses in just a moment that that point to this. But still waiting for the culmination of things at the resurrection of the dead. You see, the idea of a dismembered spirit floating around was kind of icky to the Hebrew Christians. That's why Paul writes, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Prior to that, he had compared this body to a tent, looking forward to the permanent home in the heavens. The permanent home in that text is not heaven. The permanent home he refers to is the resurrected body that is not temporary, it is permanent, not, not impacted by sin. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that's far better. Being with is a relational term that is better. It's the idea of I'm going to be with the Lord. And then finally, we referred to earlier the thief on the cross. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me. So the intermediate state is where the spirit of the Christian is in the presence of God, like I said, alive, awake, knowing and being known, rejoicing and waiting for the day of the resurrection. You see, in Christianity, the end is always the beginning. Isn't that beautiful? So many times we get focused on the details of Revelation, thinking about how the world's going to be destroyed in some conflagration of, and destroyed by fire. But that's not how Revelation ends. Revelation ends with a new heaven and a new earth. True creation is still ahead of us. Death is simply Friday, but Sunday is indeed coming. Therefore, we have hope, even as we grieve. So we are thankful even in death because of God's grace, because of hope that death is not the end, and because of love. This is where I draw your attention back to verse 9 with Isaac and Ishmael. Isn't it interesting? These two are together at dad's grave. I couldn't help but wonder what that was like. Remember, Ishmael was born out of a poorly conceived plan by Sarah and Abraham, that he would have offspring by Sarah's lady-in-waiting, Hagar, didn't work out too well. Isaac, the son of promise. Don't know the nature of their relationship, but for this moment, they are together because they love their father. The scripture is very clear that Abraham loved Ishmael and he loved Isaac. And at the time of burial, they come together with a sense of community that is so, so important. When you are grieving, community is crucial. Now, I say that knowing it's, it's hard. Because when you've suffered loss, there's the question of, well, where, where do I fit in? Life's going on for everybody else, but my life is very different. But I would encourage you, don't let, don't let the hard part of being with people lead you to isolation. You need to be with others. 
Now, I know for, for many, we think, well, I, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to somebody that's grieving or hurting. Take the pressure off of yourself. What do you say to them? I'm glad to see you. I love you. I'm glad you're here. And then just be with them. Don't discount the power of being there. Because your presence communicates. We need each other. That's part of the body of Christ. Laughing with each other. And weeping with each other. To remind one another of the hope and the grace of God. Community is crucial. A pastor by the name of John Fanestill was researching a, a book on death. And it led him up to Hanover, New Hampshire. He struck up a conversation with a man at the restaurant. And Fanestill told him that he was writing this book on death and dying. And the man asked him, have you ever heard of Bathsheba Wallace? And still said, no, I've never heard of Bathsheba Wallace. He found out that Bathsheba Wallace was an incredibly fascinating lady. You see, Bathsheba lived from 1752 to 1831, and she became quite a legendary figure in that part of New Hampshire. She was a midwife. She practiced midwifery for 42 years. And in that period, it's estimated she delivered 1,666 babies. When Bathsheba was dying, the, the town of East Thetford, where she lived, closed all of its shops and schools and gathered with her, her children around her bed to send her off with scripture, song, and prayer. She died surrounded by a large gathering of people, the majority of whom she herself had ushered into the world. This story illustrates something Feinstein, not Feinstein, but Fanestell writes. Something that every pastor knows. The presence of God is felt most powerfully when the whole company of disciples is gathered at the foot of the cross. Church, grief is hard. But we have reason to be thankful as believers. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this morning, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We recognize, O Lord, that death is an enemy that has been defeated, that has not yet been completely vanquished from existence. And we long for the day when death will be absolutely eradicated. Lord, until that day, help us to rely on your grace. As we grieve, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to weep with one another, to laugh with one another, to remember and to look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we will be reunited. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.